0: Come to Catholic stuff you should know the J10 initiative Hey welcome to the podcast, Father John with one of our new hosts, Father Sean Conroy. Welcome brother. Thanks. thanks. great to be here. So you uh, did your uh, your first run with uh, the one and only wild man, Father Mike Rapp. How was that for you? It was
1: definitely wild yeah but, um, it was intense. It was on holy Saturday. We'll see if that ever that episode ever comes out but Yeah, it was good. It was good to be with him.
0: There was uh, some mysterious uh, SIM cards that were disappearing, reappearing. Uh, We're kind of swapping gear with the seminary right now. Um, And they have been found, and I'm happy to tell you. uh, The Lost Sheep of Podcast uh, Recordings has been found. It will be published. So by the time this one comes out, uh, you'll have already been out. So this is your first – Or this is not your first um, recording but I I have to say uh just to, because this is the first time um Father Sean Conroy is uh one of my close friends a brother companion and uh is just a great addition. So when Father Mike and I uh began this we were uh talking through a lot of guys we got a lot of young talented uh companions and uh you were a no-brainer. So thanks for saying yes. Yeah, it's great to be on.
1: I'm surprised that you guys asked me, but We'll see what the Lord has in store. So,
0: so did Mike uh, have you introduce yourself to a little bit about your story?
1: Not really. I think he kind of introduced me, and then
0: we kind of went from there. Well, why don't you give the uh, the two-minute Sean Conroy story and uh, how you got here.
1: So I'm from Littleton, South Denver, same parish as Father John, St. Francis Cabrini Parish. Uh, grew up there. Grew up going to a Protestant school. Had a big conversion freshman year of high school. Uh, A lot of that was due to your brother, Steve. He's my confirmation sponsor. And, um, yeah, reversion to the faith, you could say, through confirmation. Um, Graduated from Mullen High School. That had a big impact as well. And then senior year of high school, I was like, what do I want to do with my life? And Steve really challenged me. He said, why don't you just ask the Lord? Lord, what are you calling me to do? And the Lord kept saying, I want you to be a priest. And I said, No way. <laughs> that sounds ho- awful. But um yeah, the Lord gave me the grace, found the courage, and then applied to seminary nine years later, May 15th, 2021, a year ago, a year ago, yesterday or two days ago. Uh where's ordained a priest. Can't believe it's already been in one year.
0: Congratulations. Uh one year anniversary, it's crazy. Um I remember when my brother called me uh years ago and was like, Johnny, Johnny, I got this. <laughs> I got this great guy sean conroy and i said oh, okay tell me about him. he goes yeah And he said i just put a hockey stick into his face on accident were you guys playing street hockey or something yeah and-
1: we were playing at the parish he was playing goalie he has he doesn't know how to play goalie no he doesn't i'm skate. i i think i was on rollerblades i can't remember for sure but i just skated across like kind of where the crease area was and he just like lifts his stick to try to block something has no control hits my cheek and what was crazy is one of my tooth went through my cheek. So oh. I had to go and get stitches on the inside and outside
0: of my lip. You, your tooth went through the cheek? Through the lip, yeah. Oh, man. That's yeah. terrible.
1: All the way through. So it was a full... A full.
0: Classic Steve. Now, my brother's nickname growing up was Kid Destructo <laughs> because everything he touched, he would destroy, including other people. So
1: Some things never change.
0: Which paid off well when he became a rugby player in college because he was serious. I remember watching him, his first rugby game, uh, he went into a scrum. And I'm just watching this and he comes out and his face is full of blood and he's just like disoriented <laughs> and he's just bleeding everywhere. Um, and he runs to the sideline. And apparently like if you leave, like you can't sub out in rugby or I don't know how the rules work. So the coach just grabs him by the face, takes his nose and just crick- oh, cranks man. it back into place. And he gives Steve a little pat on the side and Steve runs back out oh, on the field. Man. He's crazy. That is crazy. So That would not happen in hockey. That would not happen in hockey. But Father Sean Conroy, like Father Mike Rapp and myself, are lifers. Mm-hmm. We all three entered at age 18, and all three were ordained at age 27, 26 for you. 26. Because he's a, he's a child. So Jake Machado, a little different story. He ran from the call for... Many years. Yeah, yeah. he did. And so, um, so yeah, but three of the four entered at 18, and, and people, you know, it's funny... I'm curious, because I'm sure you've fielded this before, but people say, well, don't you think it would have been better if you would have had more life experience and you would have dated and things like that? And What what do you say to that?
1: Yeah, I think, I don't know. The Lord always provides, but I think you go when you're called. And I heard the call at a young age, and life experience comes. I don't know. It's not necessary for evangelization. I think the enemy is always going to try to attack us and say, you don't have what it takes. You're not good enough. You don't have experience. But I don't know. The Lord always gives you what you need for the mission.
0: Yeah, and when the call comes, you, you respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the worldly perspective, would it be great if every guy um, graduated college, worked in the world for four or five years, had an apartment, had you know all these things? Yes and no. Yeah, he would. You know, there would be aspects of that, but also like some of the older guys, it's, they're harder to change. There was a radical right. malleability to our soul. We just wanted formation. We were starving for it. And so, Father Sean and I went to the same college seminary up in Minnesota. St. John Vianney College Seminary, affectionately known as Jack Junior. Jack Junior. Because this is St. John Vianney Theological Seminary, so we've been under his patronage forever. And uh, yeah, Sean is uh, just a, a testament to uh, a, a beautiful conversion and a, and a, and just a radical yes to the Lord. And like like my parents, your parents, you know, it, it took some time to be like, really, you know, and our family, you know. Yeah. Um, but it has been so beautiful to share priestly life, mm-hmm. so yeah, amen. Father Sean, tell us about when you became uh, an avid outdoorsman.
1: That's a good question. I always loved the outdoors growing up, but we didn't do anything. I was always, you know, sure, maybe some biking with my dad growing up, but then it was probably my first was actually that summer when we did Totus mm-hmm. Tuis and Huron Peak. Um, which was great 2012 um, that was my first 14 year and then just kind of fell in love with it love camping I love hiking but it's probably right around that time so I had just graduated high school and then wanting just to spend time in the mountains the beauty of creation and I think there's a bond that happens not only with creation but you know ultimately with the Lord but then being with others in that as well has always been really powerful so I don't know maybe it's a little bit selfish of an endeavor a- endeavor but I'm like I want to climb all the 14ers.
0: Yep, and you have 11 left, right? 11 left. Okay. We were up on a 14er on Monday. Um, so we're recording this in uh, mid-May. This will probably come out in mid-June or so. Uh, but we're in a season called coolar season. Uh, Coolars are these kind of... Imagine a big cut in the side of a mountain with, with that holds snow, and it's maybe like 40, 50 degrees, so it's pretty steep. So you get up real early. We Sean picked me up at 3 a.m., and we were up into the up into the cooler by uh, about 6 a.m. Yeah, on Monday and sunrise. then had a great thousand feet of just pure climbing. So we got crampons and ice axes. And I, I took a video of him that we're going to post, and so that'll come out. Um, yeah, it's just great. It's great to have some... We have a few really adventurous companions. You're one of them. Father Mike is definitely one of them. Most have gotten lame as they've gotten old. Like my pastor. Like your pastor, Father Brian. Exactly. So... But I thought uh, today, as we're kicking things off, and we're going to do a double header here, uh, but the first one I'm going to take the lead on, I just read a collection of spiritual writings of uh, John Muir. Um, And so this is an interesting, this isn't really Catholic stuff because John Muir was not Catholic, but I think we can reflect on some Catholic themes here in light of, um, A, John Muir, uh, one of the great kind of pioneers of the environmental movement i'll uh, we'll talk about him and a couple of things that he says um and then also we're, we're gearing up for the car auto trail as we've been talking about and so father sean's going to have a group of young guys uh jump on for a bit and just our general love of the outdoors and i've got a book that i'm that's hopefully going to be forthcoming we'll see hmm. the form it takes but it's, i'm starting to kind of flesh out some of these ideas so it's helpful to bring this into conversation
1: isn't there a father
0: john Muir and phoenix I there see? is a father john muir in phoenix and this is not who we're talking about gotcha right? okay so the john muir we're talking about was born in dunbar scotland in 1838 and he died the year world war one started 1914 same year as charles Peggy passed away actually mm. fighting in world war one um so do you know john muir do you know much about him see the guy who said the mountains are calling and i must go it, it he is and we're going to talk about what that means actually that's uh, all i know about him yeah so, uh, that line is his most famous line. The mountains are calling, uh, and I must go. And you see that all over REI bumper stickers and t-shirts. And, um, it's interesting reading his writings. Um, that phrase means something that you probably don't expect. Hmm. At least I didn't expect. Um, and so we're going to talk about that and then some other things. So anyways, John Muir, uh, who is he? Why does he matter? Well, um, calvinist upbringing in scotland um the scottish there's a in the eight in the 19th century um the brits were not exactly good to the irish and the scottish as you might know and so there was a clearing out of the highlands so anybody north so dunbar i actually drove through dunbar steph dunbar a friend of ours Mm -hmm. um and uh it's on your way to uh Loch Lomond, where Nessie is, uh, the Loch Ness Monster, and then you go up uh, into the West Highlands. Absolutely beautiful area. Um, So the Highlands clearing happened, and I would imagine that John Muir's family is a part of this. They basically were just kind of removed from Scotland, anybody in the Highlands. Um, So there's not a lot of people up there uh, when you go visit. Uh, So they end up in Wisconsin, and that's where John Muir is is raised. He's kind kind of a dreamer, kind of wandering soul, um, you know, the guy, the, maybe the one you could describe most to is uh, Alexander Supertram yeah. from Into the Wild, a uh, great book and uh, great movie, amazing soundtrack by Eddie Vedder. Mm-hmm. Um, he's reading a lot of John Muir as he's kind of exploring the, the, the West. And so basically Muir kind of bops around. He does some different things. Super talented guy, um, self-educated, reads incredibly well. Um, but he's he's just looking for um, a life in the wilderness, which he eventually starts at age 30. He makes his way to California and then to Yosemite. So this is 1868. This is early, right? So he basically be, becomes a, a shepherd uh, in Yosemite, and he just falls in love. Yeah. And he spends five years living purely in the wilderness, like in a tiny cabin taking care of sheep kind of doing his thing um and then uh in the 1870s he ends up kind of moving permanently to Oakland um and then he but he becomes a ma- a major advocate for uh the early environmental movement um there was a there was a question posed to um, Reinhold Messner the great uh alpinist probably the greatest possibly the greatest ever um somebody was talking about when you go to Europe and you go into the Alps, there's resorts and city towns, and everything is kind of built up. and And somebody asked Messner, "Why did that not happen in the Western United States? Why is it still wildness and national parks and these things?" And he says, "Because you had Muir." Hmm. So John Muir uh, is he found the Sierra Club 1892. Uh, in the 1890s, he's proposing, he's pushing for Yosemite National to become a national park. And he's just a big proponent working with Teddy Roosevelt and these types um, to kind of conserve the um, American wilderness areas that are rapidly vanishing. Why? Because of the Industrial Revolution, yeah. which is happening first in the 17th century, or late 17th century. Um, or excuse me. Late 18th century in England and in Europe, but then it really kind of takes over in the in the 19th century in the United States. So he's he's a uh, not just a super accomplished mountaineer in a time that was like crazy to be climbing these things, but he also was doing tons of political advocacy and um, r- tons of writing uh, in the last decades in the 19th century, which really kind of uh, it got, it galvanized Americans to be like, we need to start preserving this, which we're particularly grateful for. Absolutely. So he did not want the industrial revolution to meet
1: the wilderness is what you're saying. Right. So go out into the wilderness free from technology, free from, um, buildings and, and coal power plants and all that kind of thing. Yep,
0: exactly. So he, he describes at age 30, so not just a little older than you, uh, having what he called a conversion to the wilderness. And he gave an unconditional surrender to its call. Hmm. So there is a sense of this call. He felt called to the wilderness. And that's interesting. And that and that ties into his famous line, you know, the mountains are calling and I must go, which we read. Backstory. Why was he going into the wilderness? Well, do you remember um, Chris Chris McCadless or Alexander Supertram, you remember what a lot of the drive was not just pure desire for the wilderness, he was also running to get away. Yeah, from anxiety,
1: college, stress?
0: Yeah, and family. Mm. And Muir was similar. He had a really abusive childhood um, and a very intense Calvinist upbringing. And so the first thing to just note about John Muir as a case study, he had a, he had a kind of a, a, a deep respect for, for Christianity. It was kind of in him, um, but he wasn't really a Christian, and he didn't, he didn't view the wilderness with a Christian worldview. The reason I'm interested in Muir is because I think he's one of the architects for how Americans think about nature and how we approach the wilderness, which is connected to all kinds of other philosophical systems and ideas in modernity, such as um, you think of like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Frenchman, 17th century. Rousseau's thing is basically like nature by itself is good man is bad and man destroys nature Mm -hmm. so if you so he talks about the noble savage like the perfect human is the guy who's just kind of in the woods by himself naked naked right exactly so muir has a deep sense it's very rousseauian uh but he's particularly influenced by um a movement called american transcendentalism which i don't know if you're familiar with um, this is something I've been starting to, to dig more into. Of course, Terry Wright had articles and things to send me. This is our, our philosopher friend here in Denver. <laughs> um, American Transcendentalism was a movement that was started by a number of uh, people up in New England in the early 19th century. And the most famous one would, or the most famous two would be, um, um, what's his face? I'm spacing out. Oh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm. Okay, Emerson. And then Emerson, the second generation guy, is. Henry David Thoreau, who wrote okay. his famous book Walden, and we're kind of roughly familiar with that. He goes out to Walden Pond and kind of, you know, yeah. reflects on nature. So he kind of got Emerson to um, to Thoreau to Muir, and Emerson actually meets Muir. Okay, comes out to him. He's a he's a really old man at this point. It's the eighteen seventies, and he's telling him, he's like, "You're living what we're trying to do." Mm. So transcendentalism as a project is is rejecting. The kind of hyper-rationalism of modernity, the industrial revolution these things that are kind of playing out, just this kind of utilitarian approach to uh, the way we're engaging nature and saying, no, this transcends us and we need to allow it to transcend us, right? But what's missing in that? So that's what I'm interested in because people are going to the mountains and they're climbing 14ers, but unlike you and I on Monday who said mass on top of 14er, we're not they're not encountering God, yeah. And why is that the case? Yeah, I think there's an
1: experience of transcendence that we're all looking for—something outside of ourselves. The American trans- transcendentalism, um, and I think that Alexander Superstramp—that thing of like, I want to get away, and the wilderness allows my heart to be free. We all experience that. I think when we are going outside, but I think we're hungry for something more. I don't know necessarily why people aren't experiencing that. Maybe it's just because their
0: end, their final end is in the wrong place. Yeah, I mean, Mir is so interesting to me because he's not a pantheist, so he's not worshiping nature as God, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't believe that God is all things. Um, So he has a deep sense that, and he speaks about God, you know, um, a lot. Like He has a deep sense of the transcendentals, but my 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 first thought on on him my first read is that he grew up with a really bad experience of calvinist christianity. And calvinism which goes back to John Calvin 16th century reformer like Martin Luther mm-hmm. has a really radical sense of how grace and nature work. So that's the first thing is to say that like nature is basically bad mm-hmm. and grace saves us. This is kind of the the in the Reformation and these kind of things. And so you can see how a guy who has a bad experience of that then says, no, nature is actually good, and you don't really need grace. Like, it's you can find the beauty and the glory of God in nature. From a Catholic perspective, these things are not in contradiction. Right. And I think what's missing for Muir uh, that he never got, so it's not his fault, is a sacramental worldview. mm so, what is sacramentality? You're quizzing me. I'm quizzing you. This is my old student here, so yeah. I get to kind of drill him a little bit. A sacrament,
1: right, is a, a visible sign of an invisible grace that God wants to give to us. So, a sacramental reality or worldview is to see that there are signs in this world that point to something outside of this world, to that point to God, that transcend this reality. So, right, this is where Saint Paul. I, you know, my pastor is going to be mad at me that I don't know the exact verse. But I think it's in Romans, if I'm not mistaken, that we have no excuse for, for the beauty around us. We have no excuse to to believe or not believe that God is real, that God exists. And so one of the reasons why I love going outside and seeing the mountains particularly is it it has that transcendence to say, who made this? Right. Something outside of me,
0: there's something greater than what's in this world, than what's in me. Yeah, and that's right on. And I think that if I was going to identify one thing to say, why are people not kind of God? If you don't have a sacramental framework, which is to say that visible things speak of invisible realities, um, and you collapse the distinction between na- nature and grace, which is basically what happens in Muir's kind of writings, then you're saying things that sound like Christianity, but they're actually not. Mm. Like the framework of sacramentality, because sac- the sacraments are not just like... Has dispensers of things that you get this is this is this is what it sometimes looks like you know you just got to collect sacraments you get your baptism you get your confirmation you get your eucharist you know you, you just kind of collect these things it's like merit badges on your catholic you know <laughs> were you a boy scout i was but i was never a good one and you see you didn't get your eagle i did not and neither did i i actually never got signed up for boy scouts i don't know why but, but your brother my brother camp. did steve Neppel. um so these are not merit badges. Sacramentality is how we view the world, which is that visible things speak of God. So Muir says things like this, and we, we, this resonates with us. The rocks, the air, everything speaks with audible voice or silent. Joyful, wonderful, enchanting, banishing weariness and sense of time. No longer for anything now or hereafter as we go home into the mountain's heart. John Muir. Mm. Beautiful. But the problem here is what? He talks a lot about the sacredness of nature. Okay. Um, and he's having numinal experiences. Numen, nu, the numina is that's a word we don't really use uh, very often, but numinal experiences are that moment when you're on the mountain and alpenglow is hitting it because it's sunrise and it's just like the beauty, the transcendence, the grandeur of something. It, it moves you beyond yourself. And we feel this. Yeah. It's part of nature. It just evokes this in us. This sense of the numinal of something supernatural, something transcendent. That's, that's what the, the transcendentalist movement is trying to get us back to, and Muir is very interested in that. And that's real. And sometimes Catholics, we don't open ourselves to those. And people like Chris McCandless um, are actually much more open to that experience of these things. So, But they're going to talk about things that sound... Like us, but not really. So what is mere encountering in creation? Not the creator necessarily, but everything is kind of speaking of what he calls the great soul. All yeah. right? And he's getting this from this is Emerson, right? Um, so you hear these things. Um, it is as if a lake, mountain and trees had souls and formed one soul, which had died in the storm and gone before the throne of God, the great first soul by direct creative act of God, had all earthly purity deepened, refined brightness brightened, spirituality spiritualized, countenance gestures made wholly godful. So you hear that and you, and you just say, wow, that's, that's really beautiful. In one sense, it's really true. Yeah. Aristotle had worked out that living things have souls. Right. right. So a tree has a soul. That's a different soul than I was at the Lines last night and I was petting Penny the dog. Penny has a soul. Living things have souls, but those are different than rational souls, right? which we're talking about. We don't believe that rocks have souls. Mm -mm. We don't believe that mountains have souls. That's the Aristotelian Thomistic vision that that Catholics have as part of sacramentality. So he expands beyond that, and then he kind of draws it into this larger worldview. And again, why are we talking about this? Because I think this is how people think. We all flow from one fountain soul. All are expressions of one love. God does not appear and flow out only from narrow chinks and round board wells here and there in favored races and places, but He flows in grand, undivided currents, shoreless and boundless over creeds and forms and all kinds of civilizations and people and beasts, saturating all and fount- and fountaining all. Mountains as holy as Sinai, right? He's speaking about Yosemite, the infinity of the mountains. How complete is the absorption of one's life into the spirit of the mountain woods? This is real. Like He's describing something. God's wilderness lies the hope of the world, the great, fresh, unblighted, unredeemed wilderness. Um, He's hitting into something that's deep here. But at the same sense, we're looking at this and we're saying, but you're not getting to God. Mm. You're not speaking of a creator in the same sense. So, my second point okay, so the first is you got to have a sacramental worldview if you want to encounter the Christian God in creation. And the second thing is to say history matters. You can't interpret creation apart from history. So, we believe that creation and history, salvation history, play together, mm. right? So, there's this interplay between the two. And the heart of that. What the the moment where they converge is called the incarnation, when God becomes man, right. which is a historical event and a creation. God's created humanity that He assumes in Christ, and that becomes the link between the two. But mirror in many ways, it's going to be it's just going to be separated. And then there's this kind of anti civilization thing, which is anti industry, which we get right, right. We're, we're We're on board with that, but does that make sense the the relationship between creation and history? It does, yeah, I think that's really fascinating when you were talking about it too,
1: yes, things have soul or living things have soul, but um it kind of reminds me of the pre socratics I think it was Plotinus who said something like you know all things start from the same river and end in the same river or something like that. It reminds me of Eastern spirituality as well of think of the Ganges river like for the the Buddhists, for for the Hindus, like everything is about the Ganges River. Everything starts there. You're baptized. You're washed there. Whatever the language they use is. But then, once you're cremated, your ashes are thrown back in the Ganges. Like everything is is so much part of. You're just in this world. You're part of the world. Um, you know. You are dust, and to dust you shall return, which is the different understanding in Christianity. But with regards to creation in history. God uses historical acts to work in the world. And the incarnation is what espouses all of history to himself. And Balthazar, your favorite theologian and mine, right? Yes. Um, right. He, he says uh, the incarnation is the uni- universale concretum, the, the the concrete moment Uh, in the whole history, when everything, like everything points back to the incarnation. All history is going towards that point, and then we now interpret all of reality back
0: to the incarnation. Yeah. I think that um, this is the hill to die on. This is everything, we stake everything on the incarnation, that you can't interpret creation apart from that. Mm-hmm. So that's really the question is like, what is the interpretive key to seeing the mountain? So we're up on, on Torres peak and there's a new, there's a numinal experience. Something in us is like the, the immensity of this, the grandeur, the I mean, I just personally feel like, and I know you can relate to this, when I'm on a mountaintop, all of the things that consume my life, all of the anxieties and the fears and the things that I don't want to surrender, they kind of just blow away with the wind up there. Right. Because there's something in us that says there's freedom here, there's freedom in the vastness and the and you feel your insignificance in a really beautiful way of just like things are so massive. Um, you see the stars when you camp and you look up at the at the heavens and you see just the the kind of massiveness the literally incomprehensible size of the universe, and it's the same when we're on top of a fourteen er and we're looking out over all these different mountain ranges and saying, this all played out over billions of years uh, has been forming in, in fascinating and kind of unbelievable ways. And so Muir sees this and he understands it, but again, there's not the incarnation as the, the link that if God doesn't, so to speak, like imagine there's a line across this table where we're sitting and the line is creation and the other side of the line is uncreation, right? Mm. Namely God, mm. which we can't access. We can't know God apart from creation, if God doesn't come over, cross the line, then we're kind of grasping at things within creation, but we don't actually have any way of getting to God. And that's what I see. It's just Jesus is the link. He's the bridge to the Father, right? to the uncreated realm, which we, we simply cannot know because right. we are created. Yeah. So seeing the visible signs
1: to interpret that invisible reality, right? but all of reality as well. Why do you think then the language has become, I need to go conquer this peak? If I don't have the incarnation at the center of my life, at the center of this interpretation,
0: why must I go and conquer, bag this peak? Great question. So at the same time that John Muir is living um, in the wilderness, and he lived an amazing life. I mean, this is a guy who was up at 3 a.m. who um, lived an incredibly ascetical life, like very disciplined um he, he was an amazing man um how do you get from that to the the kind of the d-bags who are quote bagging 14ers as we say right like we're just conquering everything uh Nietzsche is writing at the same time he's in Basel at the same time that Muir is in Yosemite doing his thing but Nietzsche is going to be the architect of the world to come and what, am I, what do I mean by that? Nietzsche, an existentialist, um, not a nihilist. We, Jake and I did a podcast on him a little while ago. But he's going to be the one that really gives us a new framework, which is one of self-creation and the will to power mm. and the sense that um, the Ubermensch conquers because of his own self-discipline, these things. But John Muir is not an Ubermensch. He's not Nietzschean he doesn't conquer nature by his own will. The transcendentalist movement, Emerson, Thoreau, Muir, are trying to kind of reverence and kind of stand before nature in a posture to allow it to speak to them and call them. That's not Nietzsche. And I think that John Muir is is an inspiration, and he contributes to the kind of, I don't know, I'd say the the worldview of the postmodern outdoor activist but it, but we're different now. And I think it's because of existentialists, and I think it's primarily because of Nietzsche. Do mm. have any thoughts on that? No, I think that makes sense. I,
1: yeah, I would have to think more about that. But you're saying John Muir is not the reason by which we now say, I'm going to go conquer this peak. Um, and I like what you said about we stand in a posture, and you know, our Mariologist here, we stand in a posture of receptivity to creation. And so we're meant to receive it. We're meant to... Uh, it's the fiat, right? It's, Lord, let let me receive this. Let this be done unto me. And John Muir is getting that. He's just not doing it from a Christocentric perspective. Right. But the person who just goes and bags his 14er, they just are dominating. They don't even have dominion over creation. They're dominating creation. They're
0: doing it to conquer it. Right. John Muir is not doing this to conquer it. He's not. Um, I think he'd be horrified to see us racing up 14ers as fast as possible and then taking selfies and then posting them to tell everybody right. how awesome we are, um, which I actually did. I took a video of you and I, and it's going to be on Instagram. So I'm not above this, right? Um, I just think he would be, he would really be, um, concerned about it. So like, this is a line, uh, from him that just says that who this man was, um, and he's worth listening to, he's worth reading. I'm often asked if I, if I am not lonesome on my solitary excursions. It seems so self-evident that one cannot be lonesome where everything is wild and beautiful and busy and steeped with God. That the question is hard to answer, seems silly. Every particle of rock or water or air has God by its side, leading it the way it should go. How else would it know where to go or what to do? Mm. And then he's looking back at civilization. He hated living in Oakland. I don't blame him right? <laughs> Thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wildness is a necessity, and that mountain parks and and reservations are useful not only as fountains of timber and irrigating rivers, but as fountains of life. John Muir is finding himself in creation. Nietzsche is not attempting that, nor are we anymore. We're kind of doing that, I, I, like there's a lot of goodwill you meet you meet a lot of people i mean so sean and i were reflecting on these guys we met on the mountain there's very few people on the mountain uh on torres on monday but we ran into these two guys uh these two skiers these guys were animals they're crazy crazy they're going to be out there from 3 a.m to 10 p.m so they were just lapping Grayson torres and skiing down different coulars and and just I mean, and they were, they were like, we're trying to get 15,000 vertical feet today. And it was just like insane. And we asked him, are you training for something? Yeah. And he was just
1: like, oh, for life. For you life. Know, like, I'm out of shape and I want to be in shape. I'm like, if you can do
0: 15,000 feet in one day, you are not out of shape. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable what they're doing. But what's driving them? that That looks to me much more like an Ubermensch drive than it does a yeah. John Muir kind of reflecting... Writing, sitting by a river for hours, just, mm. just kind of absorbing the the rays of beauty and being bathed in it that that come from, um, just being attentive to, the voice and of what is what is what creation is actually saying. Mm. You know, so you can see the difference there. Yeah, so that brings us to the, the kind of the third point here. So, the loss of sacramentality, um, the loss of the incarnation. And then the third is the Christian, the loss of a Christian sense of call. And this is where, in my opinion, we're misreading Muir, and we're reading him with a Nietzschean lens. When we put on our car, the mountains are calling, and I must go. Mm-hmm. What does that say to you when you hear that first? It makes like, me, th- yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it makes me think that I just need to go. They're
1: calling me to like. I don't know reach reach the tops of them to go and conquer them to go and you know not have that reflective spirit but just to go and I don't know experience life in them right
0: um, It seems to me it's it's kind of an egocentric proclamation the mountains are calling and I must go hmm. emphasis on the I yeah I must go I must go <laughs> find myself in nature I must go do 15,000 vert feet I must do this the guy the guy didn't have an answer. I must do this. Yeah. Why are you doing this? Why are you skiing from 3 a.m. until you know, 8 p.m.? Why didn't you just ski at once? Right. Which would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. To skin up and ski down a 14er, is an ama- it's an amazing feat. Why, why, why just this, this drive and this quest? I must go. So John Muir uh, said that. The mountains are calling him. He was writing to his sister, Sarah. And this is, this is the, the letter. This is from uh, September 3rd, 1873. I have just returned from the longest and hardest trip I have ever made in the mountains, having been gone over five weeks. I am weary, but resting fast, sleepy, but sleeping deep and fast, hungry, but eating much. For two weeks, I have explored the glaciers of the summits east of here, sleeping along the snowy mountains without blankets and with but little to eat on account of its being so inaccessible Hmm. john muir basically lived on bread wow in the wilderness he would just take flour with him he would bake his own bread that's what he he didn't hunt he didn't fish crazy the guy's the guy's unbelievable
1: very ascetical
0: as you were saying and then he said he kind of continues on um and uh and says you know i've had all these experiences blah 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 he continues to talk to his sister And then he says, uh, I'm writing for these journals and I'm doing these things. And then at the end, um, but neither these magazine articles nor my first book will form any finished part of the scientific contribution that I hope to make. Dot, dot, dot. The mountains are calling and I must go. And I will work on while I can studying incessantly. So the second half drops out of the REI bumper sticker. Gotcha. The mountains are calling and I must go and I will work on, while I can, studying incessantly. What is the call? The call is not to go have this kind of uninhibited enjoyment of the mountains. Conquest, relaxation, whatever. Whatever this kind of self-creation projected on it. You see what's happening here is that Mir would be horrified because what we did in the Industrial Revolution We're doing with our egos now Mm. we're using nature we're just not using it to chop up wood and 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 create whatever or or, you know mine this or, or take the water out of these streams we're doing it with our egos and he doesn't he would not be down with that september 3rd 1873 is an important moment for john muir why because he had been living in oakland from january to october but he returns for september back to the valley of yosemite And it was then that he says, I have to leave the wilderness in order to follow my mission, which is to protect the wilderness. Hmm. So he actually, when he's saying the mountains are calling and I must go, the emphasis is not on I, it's on go. Hmm. I have to leave the mountains. I want to stay here and I want to be in them and I don't want to be in civilization, but I have to go to civilization because the call is not uninhibited enjoyment of mountains, the call is something greater. Mm. And I have to sacrifice for that call. And this is his legacy, is he's not just this great kind of, he's not the Alexander Supertram of the 19th century. He's a man who forsakes his desire to live exclusively in the wilderness in order to save nature uh, and to form people about the beauty and the and just the harm, harmonious and, and radiant nature uh, of creation that he's seeing. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And it I don't know if this is going to derail you, but uh,
1: it makes me think of Pustinia, which I don't know as much about as you do, but uh, right, we go into the wilderness in order to recover something of who we are. Right? I think of the fourfold uh, harmonies and then the disharmonies or, or alienations and communions that we... In the garden, we had perfect harmony with God, others, self, and nature. And then we lost that. We're alienated. And when we go out into the wilderness um, through the you know the incarnation again, that interpretive key, when we go out into nature, it's meant to heal us, to heal that alienation so that we can have communion with nature, ultimately to have communion with God. But the Pustinia, the hermitic life, to go and heal that in a sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's so interesting because in some ways he lives Pustinia. He lives as a hermit, but there's not that personal relationship. Mm. So nature is not personal for John Muir, but he he's experiencing things that are like quasi-personal. He speaks about that. He has real relationships with rocks and rivers and these things more than we we ever do now. which Our lives are filled with screens and these things. So yeah, there's a loss of a sense of fallenness there's a loss of a need for redemption in nature in these guys. But there's also something about him and that line, the mountains are calling and I must go. And I'm like, there's something. He's, Christ is doing something through that in the sense that the call is to something greater. It's to the service of humanity, the service of other persons and the service of creation itself. The, yeah. the call is not about me enjoying what I want to do. It's about restoring communion in places of alienation mm. with others, with nature, but also with God. And to your point, everything kind of hinges from that. And that's why the classical experience of Pustinia is about all of these communions, but especially with God. Right. So I think it, uh, just we're running out of time here. Um, I think I think it's 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 really worth thinking about call again and we started this conversation with talking about our own calls and that a call is about total gift of self a call is not about um doing whatever i, I it'd be funny if it, if i came into the office this morning i was talking to val and darcy and i said i, I felt really called to climb taurus on monday why because i must right because the mountains are calling and i must go they'd be like wow that's so deep <laughs> but it's actually very empty if you short and that's not what muir is saying the call is about gift of self, about sacrifice. The mountains es- elicit this in us, right? You and I climb mountains not because we want vacations from priestly life, but because we actually think that immersing ourselves in something so magnificent and so beautiful and so transcendent that it actually reawakens the call in us. Right. You do that on a Monday, we're going to be a better priest on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I really think that's true. I felt that, yeah. So the mountains are calling, and we must go, but let's with all qualifications necessary absolutely alright this is great good well we covered a lot there it's uh it's so it's so linear to talk to you and uh Machado uh Rapster he loves to just throw it off into wild different directions so let's close with uh some shout outs and uh if you have any and then we'll wrap her up um maybe three
1: we had a men's night a few days ago at the parish and uh there's a three of them who were just kind of, Hey, I heard, you know, the last podcast, you were going to be on it. And I guess you, I had, I didn't listen to it, but I guess you kind of just said at the very last end of it, you're like, Father Sean Conroy is going to be our next host or whatever. So John O'Brien, Nick Kristan and
0: Matt Prohaska. Shout out to those three. Oh, great guys. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, with Father Michael Polakovich um, who I don't think listens to the podcast, but I'd like to give him a shout-out. He's a uh, brother priest of ours in Denver. He vested me on my ordination day. He's celebrating 35 years as a priest this month. He has a little podcast he does with some buddies uh, called The God Minute. So uh, check it out. But shout-out to Father Michael, and i um, just grateful for his uh, fatherhood and friendship over the years. So, awesome all the mountaineers and avid outdoors uh, folk who are listening to this, hope this has been helpful and interesting. Uh, these are conversations that we're going to be having on the Karo Trail for uh, a lot of days, and we'll hopefully kind of take form in a book uh, that we're talking about, To Heights and Unto Depths, Letters from the Caro Trail on Humanity, Creation, and God, forthcoming pending that it actually gets written. Verso Alto. Verso Alright, we'll close it off there. Thanks for listening. To Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Shiny Boy, great to be with you. You too. We'll see you next week.